Well, where does one start? It's the story that has almost everything. An Auckland icon reduced to a post-apocalyptic landscape. Russian gangsters, black hole water slides, bankruptcy, miracle cures. And for anyone who spent any of their youth in and around Auckland, a touch of nostalgia for those long, sunny days of childhood. Located just 35 minutes north of Auckland on the picturesque Hibiscus Coast, Waiweta Thermal Resort and Spa has been famous since 1848. It used to be a thermal playground for Aucklanders and tourists. When you came to Auckland, you went to the Parnell Baths or you went to the Tepid Baths or you went to the museum or you came to Waiwera. It was wonderful. It was fantastic. Now it's an abandoned wasteland, a rusty metal and dirty water. Cars from Auckland are just cruising down and looking at this demolished site, you know, that looks like a, you know, something out of Beirut, you know. It was brought down by a succession of failed investments, including by a Russian oligarch with ambitious plans and a shady past. We know that he owned half of a Russian energy company, but that that company actually became embroiled in a bit of a scandal, which is how he purportedly made his billions. But against all the odds, there's a plan. The one thing that pools bring, they bring fun, and I think we all want to see them back. I'm Nikki Mando, and today on The Detail, I'm looking at the incredible tale behind the roller coaster rise and fall of a multi-million dollar water park and the company that reckons it might be able to save it. First stop, Waiwera, to visit someone who lives opposite the derelict pools and worked on the management team for almost three decades. My name is Dennis Richards. I've been living in Waiwera for 31 years and, and I came here and looked after the sales and marketing for the company back then and just making the place work. And work it did. In its heyday, Waiwera got 350,000 visitors a year. They played in the pool, screamed their way down slides with names like the Black Hole. They got pampered in the spa and crowded into the movie pool. A lot of Auckland people just used to love it and this became a, a, a sort of a little beach resort. Yes, there were some maintenance issues towards the end and um, we got a fair bit of bad um, press over that. But, you know, in its heyday, it, it was always well-maintained and it was, it was in good shape. But hot pools are a tough business. The minerals in the water rust everything. And unless the equipment is maintained and to a high standard, you're running into problems. And then, of course, if the equipment is starting to get dated or old and, and, and you're running into issues with health and safety... You don't realise from the outside that it's a really difficult business to run because the water that is so wonderful is actually just trying to destroy your business the whole time. Yes, you're onto it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end... Lack of investment in maintenance took its toll. In early 2018, the pools closed for repairs and haven't reopened. The reopening of the popular Waiwera hot pools is in serious doubt after landowners changed the locks and cancelled the lease. The thermal resort north of Auckland has been closed since February for upgrades, but its owners have now been accused of dodging rental payments. Today, the Waiwera Thermal Resort resembles a construction site, its future now in serious doubt. The business owners accused of not paying the rent. We cross the road from Dennis Richards' house in the old Waiwera post office to the now abandoned pool site. 
We were walking past the front entrance here, and this was just in the weekends. Uh, was there wasn't a car park in the in the whole village? To see it in disrepair now, with graffiti on the walls and uh, kids with their togs and, and the picnics, picnics and... and fun. But now we're looking at a derelict building that is just an eyesore and um, rife for vandals to graffiti. We peer through the cracks and it looks a hopeless case. Oh, well, that'll never go together again. But I have a great desire to see this place go ahead. It's not really from a, a monetary point of view, it's just the fact that I spent 30 years promoting it and now to see it like a bomb site over there is uh, is rather sad, you know, because it gave so much pleasure to so many people. So what really happened at Waiwera? How did we get to this? I catch up with freelance journalist Donna Chisholm. In 2014, you wrote this great story for Metro magazine called Who Killed Waiwera? The Troubled History of a Popular Resort Town. But in the 1980s, you'd also spent a bit of time out there, hadn't you? Yes, I had. Um, I was writing the biography of Sir Brian Barrett Boys, the heart surgeon, and he lived on a farm overlooking the resort town. And I spent a lot of time going up there and a fair bit of time in, in the town. And I thought it was a lovely little place. It was sure it was a backwater, but it had a lot of character. And the interesting thing is that at the time that I was spending days and days up there was the same time that um, the entrepreneur, John Sinclair Brown, he was a property developer who had developed Victoria Park Market and then sold it, and he'd also developed Mount Hutt Ski Field. So he'd, he'd got rid of those projects, and he was looking for something new, and he had a vision for what he wanted to do with Wairera. And I think he was inspired by the place, and he, he wanted to build a hotel there. He wanted to make the thermal pools a, a real national attraction again. So he bought up the pools, the camping ground, uh, another property at the back of Wairera for the bottling plant for the mineral water that was produced by uh, the bore under the pool property. So he had grand plans in, in the 80s, but they all turned to custard. What was it like at the time? Was, was it quite run down at the time? The, the township was lovely, full of character. The pools were, were thriving even in those days. But there was a sense that the pools at the time fitted the character of the town. By the time I went back, when I wrote the Metro story, it was a different story. They were squalid, overgrown, neglected, just rusted, awful. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to bathe in there, but people were. People still went there, but it really had an air of neglect as if it was just unloved, which of course, of course it was. And um, you, you investigate that for your story. What's happened? Well, where does one start? I think you have to start with John Sinclair Brown buying all this property and having a vision that he probably didn't have the funds to do by himself. So in the mid-2000s, along comes a property guru called Dan McEwen. He had a, a pretty great reputation, actually, as somebody who was very savvy around property. So he and Sinclair Brown went in together in the mid-2000s, and the plans that Brown had, McEwen embellished still further, and they became over-ambitious, Resource consents for the resort that he had planned took many years longer. And by 2008, when the GFC was hitting, nothing had been developed. And 
McEwen went bankrupt, and of course that took some of uh, Sinclair Brown's resources with it. So Sinclair Brown then was looking for another joint venture partner and somebody who would also get him out of the financial hole that uh, the GFC had got him into. One thing that strikes me about the history of Waiwera, and that comes out in your story and what you've been telling me, is that its fortunes are so cyclical. You know, one moment it's booming, the next moment it's running into disrepair, and that's happened a few times. And even way back in the history, I mean, in the late 1800s, you've got a big hotel there, and then that burns down. In 1905, they build a 400-metre-long, that's half a kilometre worth of wharf to bring in people by steamer, and then 50 years later, that's gone too. And the Why We're a Water Park that we remember started in the 1970s, and for a while the plans get more and more ambitious, and you get slides and more slides, and then gradually that goes into decline. That's that's what comes out in your story, to me at least. Yes, I think I think the... The later boom busts were about probably about greed, uh, trying to make a fortune out of Waiwera. What happens over this period is super complicated, but basically you've got Sinclair Brown, whose joint venture partner has gone belly up, and he really needs money for Waiwera. And totally out of the blue, money turns up in the form of super-rich Russian oil magnate Mikhail Khimich. He comes to Auckland to get his super yacht refurbished, tastes why would a sparkling mineral water in a restaurant, loves it, and, to cut a long story short, in 2009, he decides he'll buy the company. The trouble for Himich, and eventually for Waiwera, is that the sparkling water Himich loves comes out of the ground on the hot pool site. To get the lease on the one, he also has to take the lease on the other. Kimmich only wanted the water. He didn't want the pools. He didn't like the pools. He neglected the pools. There was a huge turnover of staff. Brown and Kimmich fell out. And the relationship between the pair got so toxic that Kimmich issued Brown with a trespass order. And so he allegedly was supposed to be a consultant there for three years, but it lasted only months. And then it, uh, that was the start, the beginning of the end of the decline, really. That period when Russians controlled Waiwera is perhaps the most murky time in its history. There were rumours of money laundering, gangster stuff. There was a lot of vodka, lavish parties on expensive yachts and a story about Himich buying a goldy painting one day and just chucking it on the sofa. He hung out with high-profile people, former Prime Minister John Key, internet entrepreneur Kim.com, even the royals, William and Kate. Last year, my newsroom colleague Cass Mason did some investigating into Himich and some of the other Russians who ended up owning or running various Waiwera-related companies. I asked her, what did she know about him? He arrived on Talia, the super yacht, which created a bit of a stir here. It was pretty magnificent. He was known for his sort of party lifestyle and it was all very glamorous. It wouldn't, wasn't unusual to spot him on a red carpet with a, <laughs> a lovely young girlfriend on his arm. Not always the same one. And <laughs> yeah, like you said, he was seen with Kim.com and some pretty high profile people from 
political circles. And yes, the Duchess and Duke of Cambridge, yes, um, that was the opening of the velodrome. He got a personal meeting with them on that day. How did he make all this money? So he used to be the general manager of a Russian energy company called Naftasib that supplied oil and gas to the Russian government, Russian military, uh, and he owned half of that. So that's where he apparently made his, his billions, which he then brought out here and sank into a number of ventures. So was he a mate of Vladimir Putin? That's something that was suggested by quite a few people to me, but that was not a link that I could definitely confirm. But he definitely had he had confirmed links to the government, and he had a few of Putin's people, shall we say, come out to New Zealand for visits, which uh, have been recorded and photographed. There were some sporting connections too. He kind of arrived in New Zealand as a bit of an unknown but quickly endeared himself with New Zealanders firstly because he took over the iconic Waiwera water brand and um, bought the thermal pills at the same time but he also became known for becoming a generous benefactor of New Zealand sport so he famously donated half a million dollars to Uh, Team New Zealand the day after their loss, which he did honour. But he ended up promising a fair amount of money to a few places, including the Velodrome and New Zealand football, and those were amounts that he never actually properly honoured. But initially when he did, he, he, he sort of became quite popular quite quickly. So he didn't pay all the money he'd said he was going to pay? No, he left some out outstanding amounts. <laughs> the velodrome didn't get the, the million that he said that they would. So he was being chased for those debts among quite a few others when he slipped out of the country. It's not completely clear what happened, but the pools were failing, the police were after him on drink driving charges, he was being chased over a bunch of money he owed to creditors, and even the company's office was on his case after some irregularities in the paperwork for his businesses. Maybe it just got too hot. So Himmich got rid of his Why Widow companies. He sold the remaining 80% stake to an Ordover Trust, which was connected to a guy who actually used to run his day-to-day operations at the pools, a very colourful character who was called... Leon Fingerhut, also known as Leon Fingergut, and he's... Um, Is that his real name? Well, there were some suggestions that that might not have been his real name, and I've never been able to find any trace of him anywhere on the internet, but he is <laughs> said to be a diamond trader based in um, Las Vegas, and he disappeared too. And that's where you would expect the Why Would a Hot Pool story to end the death of a place where half of Auckland, myself included, spent many happy hours. And locals facing a big hit to their town's economy and the value of their properties, as well as, weirdly, a surplus of boiling water in their gardens caused by a build-up of pressure underground from water not being used at the hot pools and the bottling plant. A mysterious phenomenon's been the talk of the North Auckland town. The bores used to access the hot water have been erupting. It was just like a boiling pot of, if you boiled the spuds over on the stove, it was just like that, just kept on going. But hold your horses. 
it seems the death of Waiwera Hopples is not a certainty. Instead, a company called Urban Partners, which owns and now controls the site, is talking about a new chapter. Urban Partners used to be known as Retail Holdings. They're a canny, family-owned property company that specialises in long-term investment, mostly shopping centres, data centres and seaside retail. The company owns a good deal of the commercial strip in the upmarket Auckland suburb of Mission Bay and in Paihia in Northland. It started buying property at Waiwera in 2007, including the Hot Pools, where Mikhail Himich was originally their tenant. After Himich and Fingerhut ran out of money, their bank pulled the plug and they stopped paying rent on the water park. So Urban Partners went from landlord to hands-on owner of the Hot Pools. Here's Donna Chisholm again. I think that when they came in in 2007, they had a very um, long-term view. They called it at the time, or when I interviewed them in 2014, they took an intergenerational view with their investments. So I think there's a lot of reason for optimism that because they are involved, this might be the ultimate saviour of Waiwera because they spent a lot of time putting together a bit of a jigsaw puzzle and acquiring over years the bits of the property that were required to fulfil quite an ambitious plan that I understand you know, they, they still have in motion, even though it seems to be taking forever. When I spoke to them in 2014, they'd had eight executives working on strategies for what to do with that property for three years. So they're not sort of rushing in with a, with a grand plan. It's really strategically managed and looking at the whole and taking their time about doing it. And that's how I ended up at an office building in Newmarket looking at a bunch of black and white photos of Waiwera in the 19th century and a bunch of plans for the area in the 21st. I'm Evan Virtue and I'm the project director of the Waiwera Project for Urban Partners. Virtue is one of the people who've been working on Waiwera for a long time. He's even written a short history of the place, including how people used to take the waters as a cure. Urban Partners are pragmatic and, as Donna Chisholm says, thinking long term. They've made the decision that the existing water park is fit only for being torn down and they've done a deal with Watercare to sort the Waiwera sewage issues that have plagued developments for decades. Now they're beginning the rejuvenation process. Last week, the board approved a design blueprint with a water park complete with slides at its centre and which also involves day spa treatments, a hotel spa complex, apartments and a restaurant cafe area, possibly with a microbrewery. Only the water bottling plant didn't make the cut. What is happening now is that we are very advanced with our resource consent proposals for the extraction of the geothermal water. And certainly by Christmas we would like to see those resource consents in. I, I think it's probably a six-month process for them, for them to approve. And that's when it starts getting expensive, really expensive. We haven't scoped up the whole investment yet, but we are in the 250 million stage, what you're looking at at that plan. That's going to need outside investors, Virtue says. But the situation with COVID makes that pretty uncertain. We are going to need other parties to hold hands 
with us on this one. And obviously the current inability to travel um, is, is, is really holding us back. So we need to go to them to, uh, to give uh, our credentials. They need to come here to have a look at the site. This is not obviously possible right now, and we, none of us know just when that is going to be possible. These were all discussions which were lined up over the last two, three months. What happens if you can't find investors? Joint venture partners are our preference, but if we need to do it alone, then we will. You have the capacity within the company to do it if you, if you had to? Not all in one shot. I think we will be able to piecemeal this, that we will find operators and partners for, for bits of it, and there may well be bits of it that we do ourselves. What would you start with? I would start with the visitor attraction, the water park. I would start on that high foot traffic and get why we're on the map. My son is 17. Do you think he will be taking his children to this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, I would see him on those slides while he's still got that energy and that that desire. Never let him lose that. (laughs) So within the next decade, do you think? It may not be complete uh, in the next decade, but it will be well, well on the way And, and, and really would have to be. Patience, patience can't go on forever. That's it for today. I'm Nikki Mando. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Dennis Richards, Donna Chisholm, Cass Mason and Evan Virtue. Mate wa.